As April 1863 turned to May, the Federal Army of the Potomac occupied a small crossroads in the Virginia wilderness known as Chancellorsville. On May 1st, that army turned eastward, intent on springing a surprise on the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia. I'm Chris Mikowski for the American Battlefield Trust. We're in the early stages of a 16-episode podcast series that takes you to that crossroads to explore one of the most consequential battles of the Civil War. Federal commander Fighting Joe Hooker expected Confederates to ingloriously fly or turn and give battle on ground of the Federal's own choosing, where certain destruction awaited. Confederate commander Robert E. Lee had other plans. For the 160th anniversary of the Battle of Chancellorsville, the American Battlefield Trust headed into the field with a team of historians to trace the action of the first week of May 1863. In this episode, you'll hear from the Trust's education manager, Daniel T. Davis, Trust education specialist Sarah K. Barley, and Tim Talbot, historian with the Central Virginia Battlefields Trust, one of the American Battlefield Trust's key partners in the effort to save the very land we visit in this episode. They'll join me as we walk the ground at the first day of Chancellorsville Battlefield. Chris Mikowski of Emerging Civil War for the American Battlefield Trust. And I am here on the first day at Chancellorsville Battlefield, as we affectionately call it, FDAC. You can see behind me the plaza that uh, folks are familiar with that talk about some of the actions here that lists all the many donors who contributed to make this such a successful project. If you're among them, thank you so much for everything you did to help us achieve this. We're gonna talk a little bit about that preservation story coming up in just a few moments. I've got Sarah K. Barley behind the camera. Coming on in just a few minutes is my good friend, Dan Davis, and Tim Talbot from the Central Virginia Battlefields Trust is going to be joining us as well. This is a great place for us to start our story of Chancellorsville today on that first day of the battlefield because we've got this orientation that folks can take advantage of. The Spotsylvania County Museum is behind us there. So it's a great place if you want to come and explore this underexplored part of the battlefield. And if we take a look, you can see what a beautiful piece of property this is. Behind me, there's going to be a housing development that is going to be hidden by a screen of trees. Those trees were planted as part of the uh, purchase and preservation of this property uh, back in 2004. And so that's the historic tree line. It's going to re help restore the integrity of this property so that we can tell the story. Now, of course, the roads that brought the armies here in the first place are still here today. They're busy. They're bustling. Off to my left is modern day Route 3. You'll hear plenty of it here as we talk here today. Um, but that's why this becomes such a, uh, that's why this becomes the battlefield on that first day because as the Federals are marching from my right to the left, trying to pin Robert E. Lee against the Rappahannock River, uh, Lee's gonna come and advance and meet them here on this ground. We'll talk about that story in just a second, but it's that road that moves things and that's why the axis of advance and fighting is along that road. Control of that road through the wilderness is gonna be key as a part of this story. To put things into context, let me bring in my great friend Dan Davis. And Dan, you've been involved with this battlefield for a long time as someone who lives in the area, who loves this story, who used to work at the Park Service to tell this story. What is it about the first day at Chancellorsville you love so much? I think the first day at Chancellorsville, Chris, and thank you for, uh, thank you and hello to everybody. And echoing Chris real quick, uh, thank you all who are watching this for your support in preserving not only the ground that we're standing on, but also 
for your support of sharing and supporting our shared American story. Now, what is interesting to me about the first day of Chancellorsville is that we look back in time 160 years ago and the first day of Chancellorsville, once you analyze it, once you put it together for the week or so of the Chancellorsville campaign, you could probably make a good argument that it is the most pivotal of all the days of the Chancellorsville campaign. Joseph Hooker has stolen a march on Robert E. Lee. He has flanked Lee uh, out of Fredericksburg, which is just off my left shoulder, off to the east. And he's in a prime position to give battle to the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia. And he's beginning to move out of the wilderness. The wilderness is 75 square miles. It stretches roughly from Fredericksburg off to the west into Orange County. He's clearing the wilderness and he's going to engage Lee here along these rolling fields initially roughly late in the morning, early in the afternoon of May the 1st. And it's the decisions that Hooker makes on May the 1st that will influence the rest of the battle and how the rest of the campaign is going to go. And to talk a little bit more about the first day's action, I'm going to bring on my good friend Tim Talbot from the Central Virginia Battlefield Trust. Good morning. Thanks uh, for the ABT for having me out to uh, help talk a little bit about the first day at Chancellorsville. And we're, of course, um, really happy to have been part of this effort in um, uh, raising funds to help save this land and work out this deal with uh, the developers on this particular project. It's one of the things that uh, Central Virginia Battlefield Trust really believes in our philosophy is working with people to try to accomplish battlefield preservation. That's really what this was. Uh, so here at the first day of Chancellorsville, as Dan said, um, this battlefield really encompasses a huge area we sometimes don't think about, how large the Chancellorsville battlefield actually stretches here. And what's really important, of course, is our position here. Uh, over to my right is the Rappahannock River with several different points of crossing for the Federal Army to use. Uh, General Lee and his army coming from the Fredericksburg area. Once they receive a word that uh, the Federals are behind them, they're going to start dispatching troops toward this direction, largely under um, uh, McClaws, uh, division under General McClaws. Of course, James Longstreet's not going to be here at Chancellorsville. He is down in southeastern Virginia trying to supply his troops and feed his animals, uh, being part away from the Army. So there's just two uh, divisions, uh, Anderson and McClaws, uh, here from Longstreet's Corps. So this is going to be a, a little bit more of a challenge for Lee, and he's going to have to um, um, improvise and um, come up with some different ideas on how to best handle uh, Hooker and his first uh, effort at General Hooker. So we're gonna do the famous historian walk and talk and really put Sarah's skills to the test here as we follow Joe Hooker's army out of the Chancellorsville area toward Fredericksburg. Now remember, he's gonna start this march on the morning of, of uh, May 1st, and uh, he thinks he's got the drop on Robert E. Lee. He's been heading, uh, he's been told to put in all of his men and so he spent some time consolidating his army, which is so big, as we talked about in the first video, uh, it's gonna take a couple river crossings and days to get into position. But he steals that march on Robert E. Lee. He thinks he still has the drop on the Confederate army. So as he sets out in the morning of May 1st, he's entirely confident that he's got the Confederates in the bag. Of course, it's taken Robert E. Lee some time to read the tea leaves and understand what's been going on here. But once he realizes that Hooker is in his rear, that's where the real threat is, the distraction that's in front of him that is John Sedgwick and other portions of the Union Army are really a decoy. 
So he's going to leave a decoy of his own under Jubal Early, about 11,000 guys, and he's going to turn the rest of his army in this direction to meet the true threat in his rear. Hooker doesn't know. Lee's coming toward him. Lee doesn't really know how big the uh, Federal Army is, except that it's a lot bigger, and so they're going to head here for a clash. As the army's moving, Lee's going to send his top lieutenant, Stonewall Jackson, to be in charge of this end of the field until Lee himself can arrive. So when Jackson first gets here, he's marching out, and the Confederates actually have a position beyond me. I'll stop here just for a second. We can see a ridge here. When we get up there, we'll be able to see past that, and there's going to be a ridge right along an area where a modern-day Home Depot is. And the Confederates have been dug in there all winter long. This is sort of protecting their rear area. They've even had scouts out kind of near some of the forts. So that's a well-fortified position. And when Jackson gets there, he says, great earthworks, fellas, get up, let's go. We're leaving them behind. And he's going to advance off in this direction to meet the foe. So as we keep following Hooker's line, uh, we know that the Confederates are heading in this direction. Jackson wants to be on offense rather than on defense. He wants to have the initiative. That's going to be a key component of anything that Robert E. Lee does. He's going to look for ways to have the initiative. So far, it's been all Joe Hooker. Joe Hooker's been calling the shots, and so Lee's going to look for the way to try to get that initiative for himself. So that's why Jackson really wants to come out here and hit Hooker on the nose before Hooker understands what's going on. Let me bring my pal Dan Davis back in here for just a second. And Dan, is this a risky move on Jackson's part or is this shrewd? I think you could argue it either way, Chris, and thank you again. Jackson is coming out on the morning of May the 1st from, again, the position at, the, uh, at Fredericksburg off to our east to engage Joseph Hooker. Now, up until this point in time, as Chris mentioned, Hooker has held the initiative. It's very important to remember that. But Jackson, again, and Lee, are going to wrench that initiative away. Rather than fighting a defensive battle, Jackson, who's known for the offensive, and we can keep walking out here toward this ridge, Jackson, who is known for his offensive mind, is going to stick with that mindset on the morning of May the 1st. He's going to try to get that initiative back from the Federals. And so when he reaches Zoan Church Ridge, which is a very critical position, and I say it's critical because not only is it part of the rear defenses of the Confederate Army, but if Hooker can take that ridge. He's effectively cleared the wilderness. He's, got out, he's gotten himself out of that secondary undergrowth force. He can bring to bear the numerical superiority he has. If he takes that ridge, there is no other ridge, no other ground from which Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia can repel Hooker, and Lee will be forced to retreat. We can just continue walking out to this ridge. And I'll speak a little bit, too, to the terrain out here on the first day of Chancellorsville Battlefield. You'll notice as we're walking along that this ground is very rolling and the Federals, and we'll talk about this in just a little bit, are going to use that to their advantage. But to truly understand the uh, battlefield, you have to come out and you have to walk it because this ground is very, it's undulating, there's uh, uh, knolls, there's ridges, there's low rises. It's a very uh, uh, it's just an incredible place to come and visit and to get a full sense of what the Union and Confederate soldiers are dealing with out here 
on May the 1st. Let me Chris, jump in real quick, Dan, because if we look behind me here as this hill go, as this path goes up this hill, we can see those undulations really well that Dan was just talking about. And so you can't see what's in front of you. The Federals, as they're marching in this direction from behind the camera toward me, can't see that the Confederates have defenses or that the Confederates are coming out to march them. So these undulations prove really important. And because the Union Army is essentially confined to the road and its column of march, uh, you know, it's not spread out. They've got skirmishers, of course, protecting their flanks in the front, but they don't really have a lot of visibility because they're confined to that road that we talked about. Dan mentioned Zoan Church, a ridge that's beyond this one. Our friend Frank O'Reilly likes to tell people it is the highest elevation between here and Europe, uh, which of course is like, ooh, but don't forget the oceans in the way and nothing sticking up there. But that does uh, really provide a good dramatic representation of just how important that ridge is going to be. And that's why the Confederates had staked their position there over the winter as their defensive position. But as I said, Jackson says, all right, come on, let's go. He's going to send Billy Mahone out in this direction. We're going to have two divisions, Anderson and McClaws, as Tim mentioned earlier. They're going to then try to come out here and meet Hooker's spear. Hooker is advancing along three lines. The road that's right behind you, modern day Route 3, is the straight line into Fredericksburg. Just to the south, a little under a mile behind the camera, is the Old Plank Road. He's got the 12th Corps advancing along that route. This is the 5th Corps that is leading the, or excuse me, the, uh, uh, the 5th Corps is leading the advance here, led by the regulars that Dan's going to talk about in just a few minutes. And then to the north, we've got the 5th Corps, other elements of the 5th Corps that are also pushing forward. So we've got these three spears, George Gordon Meade up there, Henry Slocum down there, the regulars here under Tardy George, who's moving with great alacrity right here. And that's going to then lead to some problems just up over this hill as we hit the point of first contact. Yeah, I love that word alacrity. And let's get to the top of the ridge. Let's get back into the shade again. For those of you who do not know this, history happens in the shade. Now, again, as Chris mentioned, Sykes' division of U.S. regulars is advancing along the Orange Turnpike, again, modern Route 3, the westbound lane, lanes of Route 3. But out in front of the regulars is uh, the 8th Pennsylvania Cavalry, one of the few regiments that Hooker has left, uh, cavalry regiments that he has with the Army here at Chancellorsville. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along in our videos. Now, the 8th Pennsylvania is commanded by a fellow named, or at least this contingent, is commanded by a fellow named Charles Wickersham. And now if you, we get up here, I'm going to ask Sarah to pan out to the distance to see the barn. Not only are we standing on a ridge, but we are also looking out at another ridge, and then beyond that, yet another ridge, and then Zoan Church, or Zoan Church Ridge. And Wickersham, as he engages Mahone's Virginians, what is he going to do? He's going to do some ridge hopping. He's going to fight a delaying action. The fighting is actually going to start near uh, a modern elementary school, which is just uh, maybe a quarter of a mile, half a mile behind me. And Wickersham is going to delay Mahone's Virginians, the 12th Virginia Infantry, and he's going to hop from one ridge to the next, slowly delaying the Virginians as Sykes and the U.S. regulars are coming onto the field back behind the camera where Sarah is standing. And I'm actually going to ask Sarah to uh, come on in just a moment. But what I think is interesting about this action is if you look forward a month or two down the road, as Wickersham is practicing these tactics of slowly delaying, using the ridges to his advantage, utilizing the terrain to delay the Confederates, for those students of the Gettysburg campaign, it may sound familiar, it's exactly what John Buford does on the first day of Gettysburg as the, John Reynolds' wing is coming up and onto the field. 
the exact same tactics. And for uh, and to talk a little bit more about the fighting out here, I'm going to take the camera and turn it over to Sarah Barley. Thanks, Dan. It's uh, good to be here with you. Thanks for joining us for our video series for the 160th anniversary here of the Battle of Chancellorsville. And what I'd like to talk about for just a brief moment is the civilian land that's here. And then we'll turn it back to the guys for the fighting. So um, some of the families that live in this area, um, their last names are the McGee's. And the McGee's have a couple different farms in this area, including some of the land that's been preserved here. But one particular family, the Absalom McGee family, they're particularly interested Interesting. So we're here in Virginia. Virginia is, of course, in the Confederacy at the time of the Civil War. But not everyone in Virginia supported the Confederacy. In fact, the Absalom McGee family are Unionists. But that does not make their life easy here in the Chancellorsville area. So Absalom McGee seems to have been doing some scouting, possibly some spying for the Union armies, Union forces out in this area. We know that two of his brothers were forced into Confederate service. They ended up finding a way to desert, leave the Confederate army, and they are also involved um, in some Union spying. Um, Absalom may have had one other brother who stayed in the Confederate army, but he doesn't want to talk about him much in the years after the war when he's filing his claims um, to be reimbursed for the damages and the things that Union armies have taken. So we know quite a bit about the Absalom McGee situation and their family, their interactions with United States uh, volunteer troops, federals, um, and this is through the Southern Claims Commission, um, some research that we've done there. But here um, at Chancellorsville, first day of the battle, Absalom McGee is not at home. He's probably hiding in the woods. His neighbors have threatened to hang him before, so he tends to not spend a lot of time at home. But his wife, Frances McGee, their children are at the house, and Union troops come into the area around them, start setting up a defensive line, and the McGee house is going to be taken over as a field hospital. Um, their bedding is going to be used, the civilian clothing will be used for bandages. They're also going to take a lot of the food and supplies. And then as the Union army falls back toward the end of uh, the first day of fighting here at Chancellorsville, then Confederate troops are going to come into that same position. Um, there'll be some a Confederate artillery battery that sets up near their house. So just as we're talking about the military story here, um, think about the farms that are in the area. And we'll talk about more civilians and their influence on the Battle of Chancellorsville. But here we have a family that isn't necessarily influencing the battle, but their home is a scene of war as the fighting begins to unfold here on May 1st, 1863. Thank you, Sarah. Now, as the fighting is unfolding, the 12th Virginia is going to press the 8th Pennsylvania Cavalry back across the fields that we are standing on that you have helped to preserve. Now, as the Pennsylvanians are withdrawing back behind the camera, Sykes's U.S. regulars are going to start coming onto the field. The U.S. regulars, these are the, as Sarah mentioned just a few moments ago, these are the professional soldiers in the Army of the Potomac. They're not the volunteer soldiers. They're not raised from or by and equipped by the individual states. They're raised and equipped by the federal government. Now, as the regulars start coming onto the field, Sykes is going to throw out a line of skirmishers, the 17th U.S. And the 17th U.S. is going to essentially take the place on the skirmish line that the Pennsylvanians do, and they're going to begin engaging Mahone's Virginians. Behind them, Sidney Burbank is going to deploy his brigade. He's going to put the 2nd and 6th on the opposite side of the road to the south of the Orange Turnpike, and up here we're going to have the 7th, the 10th, the 11th U.S. Infantry. 
and th those regiments are going to begin sweeping forward from the ridge back behind us and they're going to slam into Mahone's Virginians and they're going to get or quickly get the upper hand. Now somewhere during this advance back behind the camera the color bearer of the 7th U.S. Infantry is going to fall and that and the United States flag is going to be picked up by a fellow named Stephen O'Neill and O'Neill is not only going to pick it up and carry it through the rest of the fighting on May 1st but for the rest of the campaign and for his actions out here Stephen O'Neill and we have a fairly good idea where this took place is going to receive the Medal of Honor after the war. The U.S. regulars are going to sweep forward, they're going to engage Mahone's Virginians, and they're going to start pushing the Virginians back across this ground that we're standing on, back toward the knoll where the barn is located behind me. And the fighting is quickly going to escalate. And to talk a little bit more about the engagement, I'm going to bring back Chris Mikowski. That fighting is going to be back and forth across this field, and that's what makes this field so important as part of the action here, because it's one of the few open spaces that exists on this end of the wilderness. And so that's why this clear space then becomes the area where the fighting happens. As the Federals try to deploy and get their greater numbers into the fight, they're able to use this open space to get more muscle in, and that's going to cause that problems for Mahone as he was trying to advance and then gets pushed back. That also is why the Federals then, or the Confederates realize that they really have got to be aggressive here because if they can prevent deployment of more Federals, they can bottleneck Hooker's army on those roads because they won't be able to deploy in the forests behind. If we take a look behind me, I'll ask Sarah to swing around here and Sarah, you're doing a fantastic job behind that camera trying to keep up with us. You can see this wide open expanse. Federals are eventually going to be able to take advantage of that high ground behind me on the far side of Lick Run. And when they do, it's going to be this really strong position where they can camp out all day if they want. They're going to call for reinforcements. Hancock's uh, men from the 2nd Corps are going to try to uh, come up and support them there. But that's why this wide open space is so important for the Federals and why it's so dangerous for the Confederates. So creating that bottleneck is going to prevent those Federal forces. Same thing happens off to my right along the orange, the old plank, the orange plank road. Today we call it Old Plank Road to differentiate it from Plank Road. And the 12th Corps is pushing out. They're getting into some open area. The Confederates try to bottleneck them there. Henry Slocum's got a lot of men, and he's going to push those guys out and try to take over that open space so he can get more of his men out. And that's when, what I would say, calamity strikes the Confederate Army. And Dan mentioned earlier that this is the pivotal day of the Battle of Chancellorsville because here we have the Federals on both routes of advance slowly pushing forward. And Joe Hooker says, wait, and he loses his nerve. Apocryphally, later on, it's said that Joe Hooker loses confidence in Joe Hooker. Whatever the case might be, he sends word to his commanders to pull back. He wants to create a tighter uh, defensive uh, position around the Chancellorsville intersection. Well, Slocum down on the, the uh, plank road, he's like, what do you mean? Like, I'm, I'm, I've got the momentum, I've got the advance, I'm having the opportunity to push forward. And he tells the courier, a guy named Washington Roebling, who will later try to sell everybody a big bridge in Brooklyn successfully, marvelous piece of engineering. Um, but uh, Slocum tells Roebling, you're a damn liar. And I'm gonna have you shot if I find out that you're lying to me. And Slocum gets on his horse, rides back to the Chancellorsville intersection, and Hooker's like, no, no, he's right. No, I want you to pull back. And Slocum is aghast, almost to the point where he decides that he almost decides, excuse me, to disobey orders. 
but instead he will go back to the front, he will pull his men back, and we'll visit that area in just a few minutes, and he'll start to set up that defensive cordon around the Chancellorsville intersection. In doing so, by pulling back off to my right, he exposes the federal position here. And so the Confederates are able to swing around and then assault the right flank of the federal defense here. So as we look at that ground behind me, it's great position. Federals are perched there. They can hang out all day. When I stand up there, it reminds me of Malvern Hill where they've got a nice high spot, open plane of advance in front of them. There's actually a stream that would break up any Confederate uh, cohesion. Great spot. But if your right flank's not protected, you can't stay there. And that's what happened is Jackson's going to swing Confederates around to the right flank and then disengage these guys who are ordered to also give up their position. Sykes has got those reinforcements from Hancock coming. He wants to stay just the way Slocum did, but he's going to be forced to pull back as well. And as a result, we're going to have both of these avenues of advance turn into avenues of contraction and the Federals are going to start creating that defensive position around the Chancellorsville intersection. Meanwhile, off to my left, let me bring Dan back in, or let me bring Tim back in. Tim's got the microphone over here. Off to my left, we have George Gordon Meade, who's been advancing along the river road. And Tim, um, what sort of time does um, uh, Meade have up there? He's got no opposition. He's got a free avenue of advance. Let me get Dan to come in here in just a second here. I think Tim's having some microphone problems. Um, so Dan, like George Gordon Meade's up there. No one's blocking his way. He must take this news with grace and smoothness. We know uh, Meade uh, for his temper, more so than being uh, the commander of the Army of the Potomac, the one man who beats Robert E. Lee decisively at Gettysburg just a couple of uh, months after this battle. But Meade is absolutely flabbergasted. He is furious with Joseph Hooker. He is heard to say after he is withdrawn from uh, the area along the river road off to the north back to Chancellorsville. How are we supposed to hold the top of a hill if we cannot hold the bottom of it? Meade's path toward Fredericksburg, toward the Confederate right flank, was wide open. Again, the Confederates are opposing the Union Army on the Orange Turnpike, on the Orange Plank Road. Lee does not have enough men to put on the river road to deal with George Meade's column. Meade has an open road all the way to Fredericksburg, an open road well beyond the Confederate right flank to get in behind the Confederate Army. But as Chris mentioned, Joseph Hooker is going to pull back. He's going to reconsolidate or consolidate his lines back at the Chancellorsville crossroads. Now, not only is Meade, I'm going to rewind, but also fast forward a little bit. Not only is Meade upset with Hooker, but Henry Slocum is absolutely furious to the point where later in the fall of 1863, when the 11th and 12th Corps are uh, consolidated and sent west to Chattanooga, Henry Slocum, still in command of the 12th Corps, refuses to serve under Joseph Hooker. He will be assigned to Vicksburg, Mississippi, and he will sit in Vicksburg, sit in Mississippi for the, for the better part of the next year. It's not until after the fall of Atlanta that Slocum is going to be recalled to join Sherman's army for the March to the Sea in the Carolinas campaign. But Henry Slocum, like Meade, is also furious with Joseph Hooker. Slocum will never forgive Hooker for what he uh, does here at Chancellorsville on May 1st, 
1863. Chris? Yeah, Meade, ap apoplectic. If we can't hold the high ground, I don't expect him to hold the low ground, and he's going to have to. We're going to fall back with the Federals uh, in just a second here, hop in the car, and we'll see how that position contracts. Before we leave this section of the battlefield, though, I want to invite you to come out here and walk this ground yourself. That's why we have saved it for you. That's why you have saved it for each other. The wonderful walking path out here, a monument to the regulars that Dan has talked about uh, so eloquently is out there. Go out there, take a look at it. Off to my right, behind me here as well, is a great section that best emulates what the wilderness looked like back in 1863 and 1864. It's worth walking out here just so you can see what the wilderness looked like because a lot of people walk around the forest today and they are mature forests. You can see through the undergrowth, walk the path, through that section of woods, and then you'll suddenly understand why the wilderness was such a formidable topographical spot in 1863 and 1864. With that, we're gonna then take the road and have to just kind of get ourselves around that wilderness. Dan's gonna hop back on here in a second, and then we're all gonna go hop in our car and take a drive. Yeah, and as we're walking back to our car, and as uh, th again, thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you for helping to preserve this land, helping to preserve our shared American story. And we could not, in fact, preserve this particular piece of land without our critical partners, Spotsylvania County, Tricord Homes, Tol the Toll Brothers, or Toll Brothers Homes. You may have heard of them. They have helped us preserve this land that we can all now come out and reflect on not only the Civil War, but what it took to build our country. So to them, I say thank you. To you, I say thank you. And we're going to see you a little bit later. The American Battlefield Trust and our members have saved more than 1,365 acres at Chancellorsville. We'd like to give a special shout out in this episode to the Central Virginia Battlefields Trust for their work in helping us save the first day at Chancellorsville Battlefield. If you'd like to help with ongoing preservation efforts at Chancellorsville, you can find out more at our website, battlefields.org. You can see a video version of this podcast episode in the American Battlefield Trust's YouTube page. Search for Chancellorsville 160th Anniversary. The Trust YouTube page has thousands of hours of great content covering not only the Civil War, but the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. And you can go beyond the military story to the political and social sides of American history and go from the big personalities to the common soldier, the civilians, and the enslaved, all at the American Battlefield Trust's YouTube page. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe. We'll have more episodes coming up. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the American Battlefield Trust's YouTube page as well. Thanks again to our historians, Daniel T. Davis, Sarah K. Byerly, and Tim Talbot. And thanks to our producer, Larry Swader, and our audio engineer, Jackson Mikowski. I'm Chris Mikowski for the American Battlefield Trust. Thanks for all you do to support battlefield preservation and education.